Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 44. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. Thanks for joining us again to talk about all the intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. It's great to have you, Matt. Uh, It's great to be here. And as usual, Chris, a huge thanks to the folks in our Intel chat for doing an amazing, amazing job of sharing information and keeping that Lima Charlie community up to date and apprised of all the fun and nefarious activities happening out there. Yeah, it's such a great resource. uh, All that information coming out of there. It's been filtered by some of the brightest minds in the game. So let's get to it. The first one is from Volncheck and describes some fake security research GitHub repos that are delivering malicious implants. In early May, Volncheck came across a malicious GitHub repository that claimed to be a signal zero day. The team reported the repository to GitHub and it was quickly taken down. The same scenario continued throughout May. Recently, the individuals creating these repositories have put significant effort into making them look legitimate by creating a network of accounts and Twitter profiles pretending to be part of a non-existent company called High Sierra Cybersecurity, and even using headshots of legitimate security researchers from companies like Rapid7. Each High Sierra Cybersecurity account contains a malicious repository claiming to be an exploit for a well-known product, including Chrome, Exchange, Discord, and more. Some of the accounts even advertise their findings on Twitter. The article states that security researchers should understand that they are useful targets for malicious actors and should be careful when downloading code from GitHub. They also say that you should always review the code you're executing and don't use anything you don't understand. This is one of those statements that I think sounds good on paper, but is not realistic for someone working in a fast-paced environment. Would these GitHub repos be what we would call a fishing hole? And what are some of the things that researchers can do to protect themselves while being able to move around fast? Yeah, so this I find to be a really interesting story uh, only because it, you're actually going after kind of the the security researchers or the folks looking for some of those security-related repositories and things like that. Interestingly enough, you know, I, I think that these are repositories that are geared towards folks looking for those exploits and looking for ways to really gain an advantage on the community. I, I don't want to call it targeted necessarily. But I do find it interesting that there is a group out there that basically said, hey, there's a subset of a subset that we want to go after, which are those, you know, security researchers or folks who are interested in zero days, malicious codes and things like that. And they're using that as a, as an opportunity to kind of get some malware deployed or, or, you know, get some malicious scripts deployed out there as well. The article does go through and talk about how, and and a huge, huge props over to Volncheck did some really great research here talking about um, a bunch of different GitHub repositories claiming to have things like WhatsApp zero days, Signal zero days, exploits for things like Chrome, Exchange, Discord, and whatnot, fake Twitter accounts, everything like that. And and again, I think, you know, we're dealing with an interesting opportunity of someone's going to bring this thing down and maybe even try to run it. Uh, And they're taking advantage of that opportunity. I think this is just another area where researchers just need to be careful about what's happening and read through the code to the best of your ability. As a security researcher, you are downloading code to analyze it and potentially to, uh, you know, figure out what's happening inside of it. Running it may not be the smartest approach to take. 
I would say there's probably another target market here, which are the folks who maybe aren't security researchers, but more opportunistic or low-level adversaries who just download POCs and just run it, hoping that a thing would happen and stuff like that. And there's, that's obviously another target market because it's just more compromised computers and it's folks. And Chris, this kind of compounds. If I am targeting someone who's kind of a low-level opportunistic adversary, they probably have no endpoint security software, AV turned off. You know, all the security things are disabled because they've got a computer riddled with tools and files and whatnot. And now I've got, you know, a malicious script on there as well. So a really interesting approach. And, and it also speaks towards the, you know, knowing their target market, um, advertising things like zero days for Exchange, Discord, Chromium, Microsoft Exchange and, and whatnot. It's it's a really interesting approach, but I find this to be a unique attack vector. It just goes to show there's no one who is not in the crosshair somewhere. And do you think this is a good argument for using VMs in your day-to-day work, like never actually yeah, so running anything? Yeah, the, there's a catch-22 here. The, the first is a VM is a good way to protect your host system or to kind of keep things isolated. The flip side is a lot of malware out there is VMware. So depending on what eventually gets downloaded or brought down, uh, you know, they may need to be careful that it might not actually work. Of course, if we played the security researcher role, we should be able to identify and find some of those things. I would I would go as far as to say, you know, break these files open, decompile, debug, whatever it is you need to do, disassemble to figure out what's happening and analyze it that way. Don't just run it, um, especially if you're on the research side of things. If you're one of those low-level opportunistic adversaries and you happen to listen to this podcast, well, thanks for being here, number one. <laughs> number two, be careful what you run because you never know. There's always a bigger fish. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, researchers from Checkmarks are reporting that without altering a single line of code, attackers poisoned the NPM package BigNum by hijacking the S3 bucket serving binaries necessary for its function and replacing them with malicious ones. While this specific risk was mitigated, a quick glance through the open source ecosystem reveals that dozens of packages are vulnerable to the same attack. Malicious binaries steal the user's IDs, passwords, local machine environment variables, and local host name, and then exfiltrates the stolen data to the hijacked bucket. Would you consider this a kind of supply chain attack? Not so much a supply chain attack. Maybe it's, I guess, it, from a software supply chain perspective, maybe. I think this is something that we've seen happen before, especially on the on the code side, where someone compromises a particular library or uh, you know an npm package or a library that gets used this is this is a pretty common technique something that happens in it from a software supply chain perspective I, I find this always to be an interesting vector because there's so many ways to get there in this case and chris we may have talked about this before about poison software packages being pushed up and then kind of the popularity being driven up to push or hopefully increase their reputation Th- this one is a different approach this one doesn't do anything in from an npm kind of package management perspective, but instead just goes right after the S3 bucket containing the binaries. You know, another interesting approach here is to simply say, well, if there's not any version checking or control or any sort of checksum process, then I can just insert whatever binary I want. And here we go. I've now got a malicious binary being served in addition to the big num package whenever it gets invoked or whenever it gets included. And it's just another novel way for adversaries to get into an environment or into a system or compromise code, if you will. This is, uh, I would say, also equally interesting. I believe it was a GitHub advisory that published this. 
but it does talk about how the S3 bucket, or at least attacking the S3 bucket, is is a really interesting approach. There's a multi-step process here where, and just kind of walking through it here, you know, a developer hosts the file, the package downloads the file from the bucket, and the bucket then gets deleted. Well, the adversary just actually takes the same file path, the bucket is hijacked, and then the malicious file is served to the package as well. So there definitely is a little bit of code cleanup that might be useful here, especially if, you know, developers are moving uh, buckets around, deleting buckets, or or I'm going to say call it the file repositories. If they're making changes there or maybe kind of single point in time ephemeral locations, then just make sure there's some sort of rigid checksum in place that protects these libraries, protects these binaries. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated ecosystem. I don't know how we made the front end so so convoluted. <laughs> I know, I know. It's uh, it's an interesting approach to hey, let's all just download packages from the same place. I mean, it works. It makes makes code very transportable, makes it lightweight, makes it easy. But then to that point, right? All someone has to do is just compromise one bucket, and they've got multiple multiple victims from there. All right. Uh, Team Kymru, C-Y-M-R-U, has released a detailed publication on VDAR infrastructure, which encompasses both the primary administrative aspects and the underlying backend. As a refresher, VDAR is an info-stealer malware which was first spotted in the wild in late 2018 by the security researcher Fumiko. Upon initial inspection, the identified sample appeared to be RK, another info-stealer. However, differences in both the sample code and C2 communications were observed. The name itself, VDAR, is derived from a string found in the malware's code, alluding to the Norse god VDAR. VDAR is considered to be a distinct fork of the Archive malware family. VDAR has a simple business model, with customers paying between $130 and $750, depending on the length of their subscription. Some personalization of the tool is possible, for example, to tweak the targeted information types, Although, by default, VDAR is designed to steal, amongst other things, browser histories, cookies, credentials, cryptocurrency wallets, and two-factor authentication software data. We've talked a ton about InfoStealers and Malware as a Service on this podcast. This one looks to be the marriage of both. This kind of service really lowers the bar for who gets to play cybercriminal. How do we build defenses against something that has the potential to be so widespread? You know, this is another one of those approaches, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about kind of these different services, uh, subscription-based information stealers, subscription-based this, subscription-based that, and and it really is just kind of an an ongoing process, right, an ongoing cycle that is going to be something that defenders are just going to have to kind of continually defend against here. Um, I would say, you know, lowering the bar is going to be something that you're going to continue to see in cybercrime for a long time. I mean, as if the bar could get any lower, but I think it's going to continue to be a problem that we see where you're going to have someone figure out, look, I'm really good at writing malware. I'm really horrible at breaking into systems. So let me just offer what I'm good at, you know, as a service and and let folks pay for it and things like that. Uh, I think, you know, to defend against these types of attacks without getting too much into the technical aspects of what every single piece of malware can do, because we can't, you know, protect for everything, if you will, that part makes it a little bit tougher is instead to look for maybe common areas of defense. And this is something that, you know, a lot of organizations and a lot of security vendors focus on very, very well. Um, However, in this case, you know, there was definitely use of, I believe, remote desktop protocol was being used. Very heavy reliance on network traffic. There was some VPN infrastructure involved. 
And in this case, you know, part of it, I think, comes down to, and, and this is not the easiest ask, but part of it comes down to just identifying malicious network traffic in your environment and seeing what types of things, you know, what types of network traffic am I seeing? Where are they going? Is it is it normal for me to have Tor relays inside of my network, right? Is it normal for this level of RDP activity? Is it normal for the VPN activity to be kind of set up the way it is? If you think about the way the malware sets up its C2 infrastructure, there's going to be some network footprints there. And I'm not saying endpoint detection doesn't do everything, but there's definitely some network fingerprints here that I think are worth examining and then saying, how can I apply this from a defensive mechanism? And I think you'll see that, you know, scatter as a really effective detection technique. Because what you're doing is essentially, you know, if I'm selling that 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 piece of malware or that service or that offering, that subscription, Chris, and someone goes and comes up with a detection that effectively shuts down my C2, I've got to rewrite my entire C2 process, you know, versus someone does a different entry vector or a different fish that I really had nothing to do with, but it's just the same malware again and again. Now, I know I'm describing this as it's much easier said than done. So, you know, getting and detecting across network traffic is not always the easiest thing, but looking at the hallmark signatures of of kind of how this malware family worked and how this info stealer came together, I would say the network side and, and hat tip over to the folks at I think it's Team Cumbria. Team Cumbria. I'm trying to remember Time exactly how, to how I read it. Yeah, I something. Even, yeah, yeah. Um, huge props to them for this great walkthrough. But this walkthrough that they provided is very network based. And it is, you know, it's worth looking at how can I use this to potentially defend against some of the uh, some of the traffic that's being seen. I'll add one more thing here. Sometimes it's really easy, you know. Sometimes it's it's a really straightforward process of uh, am I supposed to have traffic to to a, a, a nation that's associated with malicious activity? You know, they do mention in their blog post that eventually the ultimate connection or finally the final connection is outbound connectivity to a host located in Russia. That's a really easy question to ask of network traffic. Now, I'm not saying blanket statement, all traffic to Russia is bad. I'm instead saying, look at what your network is doing and compare that against what you're seeing. And you might be able to say this is definitely something, something malicious. Is a good intelligence feed the kind of place where you would get up-to-date IPs for known C2 servers and stuff like that? Is that a good way to have just sort of a generalized level of protection against stuff like this? I think if you're looking for static indicators or things of that nature, like IP addresses or domain names, a threat intel feed is great to have. And I'm always a huge proponent of threat intelligence feeds. They help enrich data and they help identify malicious activity very, very quickly because you've got the leverage knowledge of others. I would say also focusing on the techniques, and you can get that from a threat intelligence source as well. One of my issues with IP addresses and domain names, and they even call it out in this article too, that I believe the communications structure, the communications infrastructure rotated through several different IP addresses, and there was multiple ways that the infrastructure was set up. There was, you know, SSL certs in place. There was the use of encryption, of Tor. Sometimes adversaries can build network infrastructures that are just so big and cumbersome that they can change one IP address and detections fail. But I think, again, focusing on the techniques and understanding how the systems communicated with each other and how the C2 works, understanding that technique and then saying, look, regardless of IP address, regardless of domain, this thing 
is something I don't like to see or something I want to alert on gives you a little wider coverage. Having both together is paramount because or perfect because it lets you say, all right, this this technique I don't want. And then the threat intel feed can come in and give you indicators which hit against, you know, articles like this, research like this. And it's a great way to validate and say, yup, this thing I'm seeing is definitely bad. My confidence level goes up. Detections have higher fidelity. And that's that's where we want to be. The next one we have is from Bitdefender, and I think it's another piece of data pointing towards an increase in Apple products as targets for threat actors. During routine detection maintenance, Bitdefender Mac researchers stumbled upon a small set of files with backdoor capabilities that seemed to form part of a more complex malware toolkit. The article provides some analysis, but it is incomplete as they are still trying to identify some missing pieces. So far, the samples they have are still largely undetected and very little information is available about any of them. The earliest mention researchers could find is an anonymous April 18th upload on VirusTotal, as well as the three samples from the victim they worked with on the investigation. The article breaks down some of the files they have, including a Python backdoor and a couple of IOCs. The whole thing reminds me of that very stealthy iOS malware found on Kaspersky's networks that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you're protecting high-value assets running on Apple products, I definitely recommend reading the article and keeping your eyes on this. I'm sure there's more to come. Am I wearing my tinfoil hat or do you think that Apple products are becoming a new favorite target? And do you think this is generally the realm of APTs? Nah, no tinfoil hat here. I think we're going to continue to see it coming. Uh, We've talked about it on this podcast before many times that the Apple ecosystem, as it grows in popularity, as adversaries begin, not begin, but as adversaries continue to understand just how valuable of an ecosystem it is for sensitive data from a targeting perspective, from a threat surface perspective. And furthermore, to be frank, as adversaries understand more about the Apple ecosystem, you're going to continue to see the growth in this types of attacks as well. I think, you know, still volume-wise from a news or from a malware research perspective, Apple still gets probably a single-digit percentage compared to things that we see on Windows. Uh, and But even then, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this podcast and in our Intel channel it really stems from kind of vulnerabilities, right? Device-based vulnerabilities, software-based vulnerabilities, which may impact any and all operating systems. But seeing iOS or macOS or just Apple in general focused malware just continues to highlight the point that adversaries understand how valuable these systems are, how, you know, what type, what types of data are being stored on them. And then perhaps the follow-up to that is, also understanding that these devices are around for a while. You know, folks who have MacBooks are keeping them for years at a time. They're storing everything on their MacBooks, just like they are on a Windows system. So if I can invent a piece of malware that's got some persistence and allows me to slowly take data off the system, exfiltrate things, observe user activity, steal information, so on and so forth, it's going to be infinitely more valuable. And I'm going to get the shelf life that I would maybe get out of Windows malware on it as well. I will say the flip side of this is that uh, every year Apple has their WWDC, the annual event. In some cases, they can stand up on that stage and they can say, we completely rewrote the kernel. We're doing everything all over again. And, you know, we'd all have to just kind of deal with it. But I think adversaries are also picking up on the development cycles. They're getting involved in the development process. Uh, I do believe that Apple's got very stringent requirements around early access and previews to software versions from a developer perspective, but adversaries are still finding a way, and it definitely is the focus of research for a lot of them these days. 
Yeah, and my money's on the APTs, especially the Kaspersky one. I don't know if you read about that, but uh, it, it seems very, very advanced, some of this stuff. Yeah, it does. And this also speaks to, and you got to think too, that sometimes we're trying to get the same capabilities in Apple malware that we've had on Windows malware for a long time. So we very quickly kind of scale from zero to hero. You know, we've had decades to get used to Windows malware and all sorts of Windows capabilities. And back in the day, something that hid itself in the registry in a run key was a super advanced technique, you know, and these days it's kind of run of the mill. And I think we're going to see the same with Apple where adversaries have had a while to get used to advanced techniques and understand how things work. And now when they come up and simply say, I'm going to take advantage of this, this, that, that, change this switch, implement this measure, take care of this library, this, whatever it might be. And boom, now I've got a multi-stage persistence mechanism. It's just, well, that was years of research across multiple operating systems that led to that idea. And now here we are, you know, and it, it just lets them kind of start the race really fast with Apple because there was years of development on the, on the other side where we came up with these ideas. And to be fair, you know, as security defenders and as researchers, we do find similarities across them, right? Uh, I don't have a registry in Apple like I have in Microsoft Windows, but I'm familiar with kind of the, the you know, the P lists or the configuration files. So for us as researchers, we have that comparative nature where we say, all right, well, if I'm on Windows, it's this. If I'm on Mac, it's that. If I'm on Linux, it's the other thing. Adversaries look at it the same way. If I'm on Windows, I'm going to do this persistence mechanism. If I'm on Mac, I'm going to do that. And they just apply the same logic and hopefully it works. Well, not for us, hopefully for them, but then it gives us a chance to detect it. For sure. Yeah, it looks the same, but different. This next one is being reported by sandworm.dev and is going to be of interest to anybody working in the JavaScript ecosystem. As I'm sure most of you know, NPM is the ninth gate of dependency hell, and it is through these very convoluted dependencies that the problem exists. The Node.js HTTPS module is a built-in module that allows you to make secure HTTPS requests to servers. It provides a way to communicate securely over the internet by encrypting the data transmitted between the client and server using SSL TLS protocols. However, someone has published a package called HTTPS that also exists on NPM. It looks to be a simple and useless package that contains a manifest file until we see that over 1,600 other packages depend on it directly and many more indirectly without even knowing. This problem comes from maintainers not being aware that HTTPS is an internal node and thinking they need to install it. It has also been asked on Stack Overflow a bunch of times. Required nodes will load built-in modules first, so even if code would be included in a new version of the NPM HTTPS package, it would never run via simple require HTTPS. The danger of having HTTPS in your list of dependencies rather comes from the possibility of the package being reactivated with a new version that contains install scripts. This is why we can't have nice things, Matt. What is your take on the JavaScript ecosystem, and is there anything we can do to secure these applications that have thousands of dependencies? I know we mentioned it earlier, but uh, it seems like something that's not going away. Yeah, uh, this is just going to be another attack surface that we're going to have to, I hate to say, get used to, because I don't, I don't want to say we're just going to get used to it, but similar to kind of how remote desktop protocol is going to continue to be an entry vector, it's going to have to be something that we get used to. You know, there's, there's actually plenty of security vendors out there who specialize in kind of package security or code dependency software supply chain however we want to you know however we want to coin that term 
Uh, and it's going to be something that developers are just going to have to be familiar with. I, I hate to say every single developer out there needs to also be a security practitioner. I think that's a little unfair sometimes, but at the same time, you know, we are going to have to not only ensure that developers are using secure packages out there, but are also kind of vetting the software that they're importing. And just because sometimes you find a library that seems way too good to be true doesn't mean we import it and just start using it. The other side of that is these package houses or ones that are managing these packages. And, you know, we talked about NPM. There's different package houses or, or package clearing houses, if you will. You know, there's there's also a little bit of onus there to kind of come up with ways to secure packages and ensure that the folks who are pushing changes to these packages are the ones who should be pushing changes to them. You know, this is kind of like the catch-22 of an open collaborative culture is that anyone can push a, a, a change up there. But this one is is pretty intense, right? This was the HTTPS module, which if you're building something with HTTPS or encryption, it's going to have to, unfortunately, right? It's going to be necessary. It's going to have to be in there. That being said, one thing that they call out correctly is that this is a multi-layered problem because it's other packages that depend on it. So now we're talking packages on packages and packages on packages on packages. And, you know, I did a webinar once with someone who does software supply chain, Chris, and I think that they had found some packages go 32 layers deep. And it's kind of like, well, how do you secure 32 layers deep? You know, how do you even possibly attempt to scale that out and and dig your way through that? And I think what it comes down to is just, you know, being careful with code commits and pushes, understanding that software lifecycle process, being careful as a developer, what you lean and rely on. But I will go, you know, I will be one of the first to say that if I go and write a script and at the time I wrote the script, the packages were all the packages that I used were all secure. How much of that responsibility is on me to continually monitor that? you know, to continually keep an eye on it. So I think maybe some security implementations at the package level would be would be beneficial and would help kind of keep an eye on some of these. I, I will say this article, and again, props to the researchers who put this together, they do call out very correctly the danger of this particular package is the possibility of it being reactivated with a new version. And then furthermore, the 1,600 or over 1,600 packages that depend on it directly or indirectly just shows the scale of how wide this can get. And, you know, it's an important package. It's internal to Node. So it's going to come down to typical software checksums, validating that code is what it should be, maybe running through different tests, some security controls over it. I know there's some great vendors out there who have some approaches. You can have your own opinion on whether they work or not, but I'm happy to see anyone in this space trying I don't think it is an ecosystem that we'll ever get out of. Way too much of the internet depends on these things to happen and to work. So I think we'll end up finding maybe more secure ways to protect those packages, protect those imports. Until, Chris, of course, you know, our AI overlords take over and determine on the spot which one is the most secure package for me to use. Yeah, right away, it made me think of uh, Software Bill of Materials or SBOM. But again, like, how do you make use of that when it goes so many layers deep, right? Yeah. That almost becomes too much overhead in itself. And that's what I was trying to steer away from. I was trying to steer away from using that SBOM term. And for exactly the reason you pointed out, we get to a certain depth and it's like, well, who does this rely on now, right? Who's, Who's, quote unquote, responsible for this at this point when you get to a depth that it's just kind of insurmountable for 
nearly every developer involved. But it's a valid problem and something that we definitely need to address. I will say that it is also rectified rather quickly as well. Some of the kind of package-based implants or package-based compromises that we've seen are some of the fastest to get remediated. I mean, these developers get so quickly on updating, patching versions, patching code, issuing updates, being communicative with the community, discords, reddits, tweets, everything, just, you know, really, really good about letting folks know what's going on. So then it comes down to, well, is everyone reading the notices and paying attention and patching and update themselves and things like that? So it just comes down to maybe, you know, as an entire ecosystem, making sure that we're all just being vigilant about uh, the dependencies that we use. All right. Uh, OnLab Security Emergency Response Center, or ASEC, has recently discovered an attack campaign that consists of the Tsunami DDoS bot being installed on inadequately managed Linux SSH servers. Not only did the threat actor install Tsunami, but they also installed various other malwares such as Shellbot, XMRig, CoinMiner, and LogCleaner. Tsunami is a DDoS bot that is also known as Katen. It is one of the several malware strains that have been consistently distributed together with Miray and Gafkit. While they all share the common ground of being DDoS bots, Tsunami stands out from the others in that it operates as an IRC bot utilizing IRC to communicate with a threat actor. From what I gathered from the article, poorly managed Linux servers in this case means servers that are configured to use password authentication, which leaves them open to dictionary attacks. If you're not already, you should most certainly be using SSH certificate-based authentication. Passwords just don't cut it. One thing I found interesting in this article, which I think we've touched on before in the show, is the use of things like IRC as C2 infrastructure. I have my suspicions, but maybe you can help me understand what the perceived advantage is for some threat actors to set their infrastructure up like this. You know, this I, I kind of love how cyclical we get in this nature. I remember IRC being a primary vector of communication for, for quite a few folks for a long time. And then it kind of fizzled away in replacement of other things. And now it's back to adversaries using it. And, you know, I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a common showing of a protocol or a communication medium gets very, very popular and then may kind of dwindle in use and therefore dwindle in knowledge and dwindle in uh, observation and dwindle in detection. I mean, Chris, I would I would go as far as to say there are probably several thousand networks in the world that if a single IRC packet is detected, it would be an issue for concern. But it's, you know, a, a largely uh, unmonitored and I have to say that, especially in speaking with some of the groups that I speak with today, it's it's also in some cases a largely unknown protocol. I mean, some folks, you know, weren't around when IRC was, or they weren't in security, or they weren't in networking, or they weren't in computers when IRC was as popular of a communication medium as it was. And adversaries look at it and say, oh, great, another way for me to hide under the radar, right? Now, remember, in this case, they're also dealing with poorly managed Linux servers. And I think you called it out directly. Uh, These are servers that are subject to dictionary attacks, very weak passwords, uh, misconfigured, poorly managed, same same thing, same synonym there. Uh, And while using better SSH validation or passwordless, not passwordless, but certificate-based authentication is one answer. The other is to remember that the adversaries who are taking advantage of these systems, they're probably looking for protocols that are easily recognized and easily deployable on these systems. And when you think about it from a malware author perspective, you got to think libraries to encode or to build out communications, to build out C2s. 
What type of activity would maybe fly under the radar versus what activity would be detected? What's going to blend in? What's not? And then also what's easy to control and easy to not control? And for this particular adversary, propping up an IRC server, which anyone can do, by the way, propping up an IRC server and using that as a C2COM is relatively low on the code front. So when we're talking about a piece of malware that comes from Mirai and Gafkit targeting IoT devices, we're talking very low overhead here. Very low. We're not talking a complex piece of malware or a multifaceted info stealer or exploit kit like you and I have talked about before. We're talking about a DDoS bot. This is a very simple receive a command and do a thing piece of malware. C2 infrastructure can be just as easy. And of course, you know, using IRC, maybe I get to stay under the wire and maybe it's really easy for my adversary to set up and maintain that IRC server. Maybe it's easy for them to rotate infrastructure if they need to. And I'll drop in the final potential if that I've got when I read through this. Maybe that's all they know. Maybe they are really, really good at building IRC servers. And they're like, I'm just going to transfer this skill into something here, you know? And interestingly enough, it's uh, something that they just decided to include into their malware. And it builds out and it works for them because you and I are talking about it right now. And sure enough, there it is. It's working. So it's an interesting approach, but one that might have multiple benefits for the adversary and helping them evade detection. Rewards of up to $10 million are being offered by the U.S. State Department's Rewards for Justice program to individuals with any information that would establish a connection between the CLOP ransomware operation and foreign governments, as reported by Bleeping Computer. Quote, do you have info linking CLOP ransomware gang or any other malicious cyber actors targeting U.S. critical infrastructure to a foreign government? Send us a tip. You could be eligible for a reward. That quote coming from the Department's Reward for Justice program in a tweet. Such a bounty program was introduced following the widespread CLOP ransomware attacks involving the exploitation of a zero-day flaw in the Move It Transfer File Transfer app that commenced over the Memorial Day weekend and has already impacted the U.S. Department of Energy and various other federal agencies. CLOP ransomware has already begun extortion efforts, and while it insisted that all stolen government data has already been deleted, the possibility that such information will be exploited in future attacks remains. All of this begs the question, Matt, how do we get that reward money? So we need to go hang out in the same places where the Klopp ransomware gang is and see if any of them will divulge their secrets to us. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a classic. Maybe I can make the money more exciting on this side of the line and, uh, you know, hopefully get someone who knows who this ransomware gang is to give them up. 10 million bucks is a lot of money especially if you are someone who's maybe on the lower level side of the Klopp ransomware team and you're, you know, hey, everyone else is making big bucks. Why am I not doing it, right? There was some famous movies built around this type of approach where you offer more money than the adversaries can and therefore your payday gets a little bit bigger. I mean, in this case, it is, you know, federally subsidized tax dollars. So who does not want to have that? But you'll never, ever work in that industry ever again. But, you know, this just goes to speak as well to the types of damage and the danger that this group potentially presents or presents or is presenting right now. Move it, as we've talked about before, and as the security industry has seen over the past, geez, I guess almost month now, if not month month plus. Yeah. Yeah. Since Memorial Day, I think. So we're coming up on a month now. We're recording this June 22nd. You know, this is a, a something that the U.S. government wants to nip in the bud, wants to shut down. It's a group that's wreaking havoc. They're causing a lot of problems. They're exposing 
They are extorting. They are doing all sorts of things that make it very public. They're being very prolific. And I think that makes it very difficult. You know, it makes it difficult to defend against them. It makes it difficult to say, hey, we've neutralized this threat. It causes stress in the boardroom, stress in security operation centers, stress at incident response firms. And, you know, maybe a bounty is a way to bring that down. Chris, whether or not you and I are hanging out in those channels already, I highly doubt it. Again, our Intel channel is full of great researchers doing amazing stuff. I hope none of them are part-time or maybe full-time malware authors or CLOP ransomware gang members. But I'll just say in general, for those of you listening to this podcast, if you are on the side of the line where you know someone in that gang, take the reward money. I promise you, you can do much more with a whistleblower reward or a uh, $10 million bounty than you can with sitting in a ransomware gang hoping for your cut of the pie. I think that's some great advice. And I'd love to see more of this stuff happening. It looks like a good way to uh, turn those groups against each other. The last one we have time for today, this one is coming from Sentinel-1, who is reporting on the Terminator EDR killer Spyboy. A Russian-speaking hacker has been making headlines recently after promoting a tool that the threat actor claims can bypass EDR and AV tools. This so-called Terminator tool is said to be able to kill processes belonging to all AVs, EDRs, and XDRs, which, if used in conjunction with other malware, could allow threat actors to breach defenses. Terminator utilizes the bring-your-own-vulnerable-driver-attack technique, BYOVD, which involves threat actors deploying drivers that are legitimately signed and can be successfully loaded into Windows systems. However, these drivers have vulnerabilities that grant attackers the ability to execute attack-provided code in kernel context. This puts the attackers in a privileged position, enabling them to circumvent the limitations imposed by the operating system on user processes. This is one we've talked about quite a bit. Bring your own vulnerable driver seems to be a very popular way of getting a foothold. What are some good defensive strategies here? Are there things organizations or defenders can do to make it harder for these kinds of attacks? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a type of attack where you've got to level up your detection techniques. I'll just say kind of uh, on the surface and maybe say first, this is not a, you know, info stealer or, or necessarily like a browser toolbar where it's going to be a very straightforward install. And, you know, there's a malicious executable and a hash I could look for something along those lines. This is going to be a little more of a complex attack. This is going to be one that's going to involve, you know, bring your own vulnerable drivers we've talked about before. And as they do talk about here in this article is going to be a technique which is going to bring legitimately soft signed software onto the system. And it's going to take advantage of the driver itself in order to load code and then run it in kernel context. The, the the tough part about this here is that we're going to have to make sure we've got detection mechanisms in place that allow us to, first off, detect this type of activity. You know, very similar to kind of in-memory detections, in-memory loading, uh, reflective code loading or, or reflective injection and other types of advanced techniques that we've seen happen before. We're going to have to level up from a detection perspective. This adversary does go the route of saying how, and I find this to be a little bit of a funny thing here, Chris. They go through the route of saying, my program works on Windows 7 through Windows 11. I can kill any EDR and bring it down. And then it's published by an EDR tool who says, well, we can actually detect this and we can bring it down. So it's one of those cat and mouse games, right? Someone comes up or develops a new technique. They get very public about it, try to offer it as a service. Someone on the defensive side notices that, and then they subsequently write detections in order to find it. 
that cat and mouse game is one that unfortunately may persist for a little while, but the more we catch them or the more we detect them, the better we get at it. This article does provide a list of various indicators of compromise. I think it's a list of SHA-1 drivers that are likely vulnerable drivers that they've seen used or abused this way. And there it is, right? There's our first level of detection using, we talked earlier about a threat intelligence service to maybe enrich my network data or enrich my network detections. Same approach here, utilizing what we know is bad to offer maybe that base layer. And then going a route of looking kind of at the heuristics of loaded drivers. Is there something that's new, something that is uh, previously unseen, but, you know, looks almost maybe legitimate. Maybe my versions are a little bit older. Uh, Maybe my checksums are a little bit different. And you know, a higher level of detection would be the easiest way to maybe detect these and write the rules against them. But I think this is a technique. We've seen it gain popularity recently. And I think we're going to continue to see it over, you know, we've seen it over the past few years. I think we're going to continue to see it over the next several years as adversaries continue to refine their technique and they continue to find maybe even more ways to take advantage of that. Uh, The other side of it, Chris, I do not know what the answer is for this one because I am not an operating system developer. But if there's something that can be done at the operating system perspective, maybe to hard code in certain drivers or version numbers or something else that would prevent vulnerable versions from getting loaded, if possible, if possible is the biggest part of this caveat here, if possible, maybe some operating, uh, operating system level protections would also be useful. And the other thing I'll add on to that too, some OSs do have these types of mechanisms in place, uh, you know. I I don't know all the names, but I know that with the Windows operating system, for example, Windows 10, Windows 11 do have quite a few advanced security features included in them. You know, if you're running a smaller network or you're somewhere that is maybe extremely budget conscious, take a look at some of the built-in capabilities that you've got in those Windows systems. You know, you could go and enable and deploy them via GPO. And I'm not saying they're the end-all be-all. They're not going to stop every piece of malware that comes through. But I look at it as a game of percentages. If right now you're defending against 5% and enabling some built-in features lets you enable against 30%, you're right, it's not everything. But that's a 25% gain that I didn't really have to do much for and I didn't even have to pay for either. So my, my other advice would just be to look at some of the things that are built in and try to bring down that attack surface as much as possible. Yeah, it all comes down to statistics in the end, right? That's right. Adversary success rates versus detection rates. Awesome, Matt. Well, that's time for today. Thanks for coming back again. Uh, Always enjoy these chats, and hopefully we're providing some value to some of our listeners. Excellent, Chris. Always great to be here. Huge thanks to you for having me on every week. Love being here and walking through this with you. And again, a huge thanks to our Intel chat. You keep Chris and I on our toes and give us some great discussion things to talk about. So thank you all and looking forward to talking with you next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. And that concludes episode number 44 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.